Ninth Story Studios, giving story a voice. This podcast is part of the Dark Myths Collective. Visit darkmyths.org to discover more shows like this one. The darkness awaits. You're listening to The Private Collector. Hang on to your hats. Things are about to get weird. A little flexibility can go a long way. By refinancing your newer used auto loan with PenFed, you can lower your monthly payments for more flexibility in your budget. You can even schedule your first payment for up to 60 days from the date of your refinance. Calculate how much you could save at PenFed.org slash autorefi or call 1-800-247-5626 to apply. Membership is open to everyone. To receive any advertised product, you must become a member of PenFed, insured by NCUA. A little flexibility can go a long way. By refinancing your newer used auto loan with PenFed, you can lower your monthly payments for more flexibility in your budget. You can even schedule your first payment for up to 60 days from the date of your refinance. Calculate how much you could save at PenFed.org slash autorefi or call 1-800-247-5626 to apply. Membership is open to everyone. To receive any advertised product, you must become a member of PenFed, insured by NCUA. Private Collector, Season 1, Episode 5, The Big Easy as the Crow Flies, Part 1, by Aaron Vleck. What the hell is this for? I choked, staring bug-eyed at the round-trip train ticket, like it was scratched in some kind of alien cipher. I hadn't even caught my breath after that last caper with Little Victoria in some shadow version of New Orleans before the librarian had ordered me to his subterranean lair, filled with the splendors and horrors of a thousand magical cookbooks from his many strange and worrisome systems of speculative endeavor. It was the middle of the night, nothing unusual there, of course, and in my hands was a train ticket to, of all places, New Orleans. I was wondering if I'd really stepped off that elevator after all, or if I was still wandering around the other side of town, a thousand miles from home. What do you think it's for, my dear boy? The librarian's voice boomed with a chuckle that always meant I was headed back up Shit Creek in a two-bit rowboat. Go on now, use your imagination and take a guess, I dare you, he added, standing up and crossing his arms over his chest like a bouncer in a speakeasy. I got it, I got it. I said, shaking my head. It was always like this. Like a moth to a flame, he'd said one time. How I'd came to be mixed up here in the first place, 
with no exit sign in sight. I'm going to New Orleans. Okay, so what's the caper? Oh, the caper, he roared. How I love that little word of yours. It sounds so fun. Okay, okay, give it to me, I added, plopping down on the old velvet couch. It was my usual perch for these audiences. Well, as you might imagine, it has to do with a book. Two books, actually. One for me, and one for you, Mr. Enfield. For me? Yes, this is a rather complicated caper. You'll be killing two birds with one stone, as they say, but I certainly hope no feathered flyers will actually meet their untimely demise. (laughs) He chuckled, eyeing me narrowly like he does when he's busting my chops. I won't beat around the bush, Mr. Enfield. You have unfinished business in that charming little hamlet down south, and, well, quite frankly, you're of no use to me until you tie up those loose ends that are distracting you from the business at hand, he said, and then muttered something under his breath I couldn't quite catch. It was another reminder that no matter how many times I'd put my hide in the hot seat for him and his precious books, the librarian wasn't my pal never would be, and I wasn't planning on jumping up and slapping him on the back on the way out as the door hit me on the ass. Oh, by the way, he added as I stuffed the tickets into my coat pocket, I'm afraid I'm sending you into the lion's den. Can't be helped, ta-ta-ted all that, you understand, old man, eh? I just stood there, waiting for the other shoe to drop. It's always, by the way, isn't it? The opening pitch for the real shit that's headed straight for the fan. The supposed afterthought that was the real meat and potatoes of the set to. Yes, the book I want you to retrieve for me is currently in the possession of one Amadie Philippe. The only book he owns, apparently, and one he stole from me long ago. Amadie is an individual of no small infamy among certain New Orleans secret societies and criminal elements. The man has been a scourge on the poor citizens of New Orleans for, well, a very long time. He maintains a stronghold near the city, and you will only gain entrance to it by being guided there by one of his own minions, or by someone else who may assist you there. Seek out the one who keeps watch over the crossroads, bring him good cigars and fine rum, and he might even let you live. Something was beginning to shape up. I smiled. It was the kind of smile you see on the faces of the insane as they're led up to the gallows. He was talking about the Baron. Baron Samdi. Half legend, half rumor, and 110% truth to anybody who'd spent more than a bender in the Big Easy with his eyes open. And the book for me? I asked, trying to decide if it was the chills or the thrill of the hunt that was massaging my bowels, decided on the latter, just to be on the safe side of hubris. Why, Mama Cartwright has that one in her safekeeping waiting for you to, I believe she said, do the right thing. He stood up and waved his hand at me like he was telling a hired goon to beat it, then turned his back and was gone in that insufferable way he has of disappearing completely without a trace. I had no idea how long I'd be gone, so I packed a couple of bags and 
headed for the bus station that would take me the first leg of the trip. Before I left, I decided to stop by the old geezers down by the river and say goodbye. See if they needed anything before I cleared out and just let them know I was going incommunicado for a while. As I neared their shack that doubled as a waterfront shanty bar, I heard them laughing and talking excitedly. But they sounded different. Kind of like they'd gotten into some of that loco weed. Yeah, the boss said so. You heard him. Yeah, uh uh-huh, uh-huh. One was saying. I never knew who was who, and even though they told me their names, it was the strangest thing. Never could remember. Oh, well, that's a damn shame now, ain't it? Well, sure enough tis, but the boss got his reasons. The third one cackled. And he knows best that he does, mm-hmm, that he does. Nobody ever better question what the boss says, no sir. Man knows what he's doing, the boss does. Mm-hmm. But I like this one. He's a nice enough feller. He ain't hurting nobody. I'd miss him something terrible if the black juju was to catch up with him. By now, they were all just cackling and talking over each other. Maybe this old boy will be the charm, you know. Do the trick like he's supposed to and pull that thing off old Amadee. You think that's gonna happen, do you? Well, maybe. Why not? He's a smart one, this feller. Maybe he'll be different than the others. I was to say, how many have been now, you think? All said and done. Oh, I don't know rightly. Sure enough, must be nine or ten now gone and not come back. Sure, at least nine or ten gone. None come back. Nope, not one. Boss knows best now here. You know that for sure. Boss knows best. Yup, yup. Yep, always does, always has, always will. When we flying? Soon, yep, yep, soon, soon as the crow flies. Then they all started busting up as I walked up to where they were sitting on the half-rotted old porch. Well, now looky here, speak of the old Hank himself. How you doing, old son? You ain't going somewhere, are you? Somewhere special like? Here. Pull on a tub and sit yourself down a bit. Yep, yep. You go on now. Take your load off your dogs and... Yeah, have yourself a drink. Sure, we all will. Sure, that's the thing. A drink. We'll all have a drink to toast you going away. And another toast when you come back safe and sound. Here? He's right, old son. You get on now. After you finish your drink. But... You get on back here safe and sound by the by, you hear? But them that'll be watching out for you hide some. One of them said in a lowered tone as he sidled up to me close to my ear. They should watch and keep an eye on things. They do what they can, mind. Do what they can. You rest assured on that they will. Mm-hmm. I listened to all this and was caught like a deer in the headlights wasn't the first one the librarian had sent down to New Orleans to retrieve that book, whatever it was. But if I made it back, I'd be the first of... how many? Ten or more? I felt completely alone. Cut off from everything, and I no longer felt any trust in the librarian. It was looking like I was just the latest in a revolving door of schmucks who'd been lured into this thing by the hunger for things... Most people know nothing and care even less about. 
Had that blinded me to the danger? Hell, I knew there was danger at every turn here, and danger was something I could handle. Being some kind of sacrificial goat, and the latest in a long list of them. That didn't cotton by, and I was tempted to turn tail and say the hell with it. But then the memory of Mama Cartwright's angry face came back to remind me, as the librarian had, that there was unfinished business in that Louisiana town, and it had to be tied up, no matter what the cost I had to pay. If there was any chance Doug was still alive, or even some shade of his cotton limbo, I was going to find him and set him free. As for the old codgers, what did they mean about them that watch keeping an eye on me? Was that them? And what did when do we fly mean? Part of me knew the answer to that, so I let go of the last of my fantasies that these were just some nice old guys, guys who, as memory served, were also tied up to their skivvies with the librarian. One step at a time. Train, New Orleans, find the book, find Mama Cartwright, whatever book she had for me, then find Doug. And, oh yeah, find the Baron Samdi, the Loire of the Crossroads, and death, and all that fun stuff. The guy who looked even more like a skeleton than the librarian, except that he had a mean tailor and cut as fine a figure as any dandy spade on Bourbon Street. Well, hell, if I played my cards right and brought him the rum and cigars he favored, he might even help me. Yeah, as I did my numbers, it was looking like the first move after I hit the Big Easy was to find the Baron, or summon him, see if he was amenable to what I was up to, and go from there. Now, I'm not a religious man. Seen too much for that Sunday school business, but my money was on the Baron, and that required a whole lot of what I could only call faith. I could use all the help on this thing that I could muster, and I hope to God New Orleans, as the crow flies, was not too far a pace behind my own tail feathers, and when things got to going, the old codgers would be there in my court. This was what was squirreling around in my head on the way down to New Orleans, and it was a long trip. I had to get straight for this. It had been a while since I'd been in town, but I'd lived hard and fast when I was, and I tried to remember who still owed me a favor or two, and who might be gunning for me. As soon as I hit town, I headed to the St. Charles on the librarian's nickel, and got into my best suit. Then I headed down to Martine's place off Bourbon Street, where the jazz was hot, and Martine was hotter. I wasn't quite sure where I'd left things with Martine, but she was a good dame, and I figured she was the best place to check in. Martine around? I yelled, squeezing between a thick line of cats and zoot suits, pressed up to the bar, watching a bunch of kids jitterbug. The noise was deafening, and I could hardly see for all the cigarette smoke. That was just how I liked it. And before the bartender even noticed I was standing there, I felt a hand grabbing me by the back of the neck. And then a luscious pair of lips was pressed against mine. 
I'd smelled her perfume even before that. Chanel number five. Damn, that woman was good. I was hoping this was a sign that things were okay. What you doing here, Frankie? She asked, pressing her soft body and all that red satin and taffeta into my arms. Martine, baby, you don't think I could stay away forever, now did you? I crooned into her ear, savoring that expensive French perfume the Negro birds on this side of the street favored when they could afford it. Martine could afford just about anything she wanted. Yeah, yeah, Frankie. Heard you was in the nut house. They let you out for bad behavior or what? Where'd you hear that? I asked. Not really too surprised she'd heard. I got a friend in deep places. You know that. My mama Cartwright's been asking about you too. You missed a funeral, you rat. She added, slapping me hard in the face. I flinched, but said nothing, knowing I deserved it. I know, and I'm here to make all that right. I swear, I said, pulling in close again, trying to make all nice and wondering how I would broach the subject. How you been, baby? Cut the crap, Frankie. I know why you're here. Word gets around. I hear things. I know people. You forget that, did you, Frankie? You know the one who whispers in my ear? He knows you're coming to see him. Go see my kid brother first at his place. You know the way. He'll set you up in the right direction. I... I... I muttered like a gimp. She always had that effect on me. She was one of them. One of the juju people, born and raised in the way. She and her kid brother, me and Doug, had run in the same circles back then. Before New York. Before me and Doug had gotten our fancy ideas about being detectives. As kids, we'd all drink lemonade on Mama Cartwright's back porch in the summer and listen to stories all winter long. When we grew up, she taught us other things and set us firmly on the juju way. I didn't have time to stew in fond memories of times gone by, but maybe later, if things panned out. Thanks, doll, I said, giving her another kiss that said, We still good, maybe? Yeah, yeah, go on. She added, shoving me into the crowd towards the door. And Frankie? Yeah? You survive. You come back and we'll see the green fairy and go dancing like old times. She yelled over the crowd. You got it, kid. I waved. Long as Mama Cartwright gives me the high sign, that is. I looked back. She was gone, but I could hear the echo of her laughter. That was Martine. I was out on the street, heading for Maurice's potions, spells, herbs, and whatnot. Her kid brother's joint on an alley off Decatur. Yeah, I knew the way, all right. Along with everything else, Maurice ran Marie Laveau's fan club. The real fans. The serious practitioners who remembered her as she wanted to be remembered, and made sure her tomb was kept fresh and loaded with all the pretty things she liked. Maurice and his crew also shilled the rubes who came to town from the white suburbs, looking to dip their toe in that weird shit for a day or two and engage in a few fantasies before heading back home to places like New Rochelle and White Plains. It was all harmless fun and kept Maurice and his pals in absinthe and cretex and fancy threads. But when it came to the real juju, there was no pussyfooting around, and they were all business. I always liked Maurice. 
The shop on Decatur was shuttered for the night, but I smelled the Cretex from down the block and knew he worked in the back on his potions and whatnot. So I jumped the fence and went round and banged on the back door. Maurice looked up from his workbench and grinned. Well, you took the Lord's sweet time getting back down this way. Good to lay eyes on you, my man. Get in here and let me quench your thirst, he said, slapping me on the back. It had been a good three years since I'd seen Maurice, and in that time he'd grown about six inches. Now, the kid towered over me. I hope you stopped off by Martin's or you're a dead man walking, he roared as he poured us a couple of stiff belts and we clinked glasses. You know I did, I said. You heard about Mama Cartwright by now, yeah? Yeah. When did that happen? I was really sad to hear the old lady was gone. But I didn't mention anything about seeing her in Cemetery Number 2 just a few days earlier in another world. There was plenty of time for catching up when the work ahead was behind me. A while ago now, yeah, a while ago. Haston asleep, real peaceful. Haston angry at you, though, and missing a boy. Maurice said skewering me out of the corner of his eye. Yeah, I know. That's partly why I'm down here, to set things right. I live through the next couple of days, and we'll sit down and I'll get you up to speed. I'll hold you to it. Now, I know why you're here, too. I can help you find the Baron. I figure he's who you're looking for. Maurice explained, already going to his boxes and cupboards and dragging stuff out. Phew. I was hoping you'd go with me. I breathed a sigh of relief. Not so fast, cousin. I ain't getting my honey caught up in the Baron's crosshairs no how. I've cashed in all my chips with him for a long stretch. I show my ass in his domain now, and who he'll snuff my little candle and drag me home by the heels to the great hallelujah, and I'm too young for that, son. Nope, I'll fix you up one of my hex lamps. You follow it close, and it'll lead you right to him. But this one's staying put. I watched as Maurice brewed up a concoction of tobacco and rum, the good stuff, same as we'd been drinking, and put it in a small terracotta bowl. Then he added a few other herbs and spices, mumbling under his breath all the while. Then he mixed in some melted red wax and topped it off with a big lug of his own spit. He set the mess on fire, and it glowed up purple, real hot, and smelled kind of sickly sweet. No time to kill. You best get on with the thing at hand. Leave through the basement. There's a trap door down there. It leads toward the Mississippi, or so we say. He added with a wink. Follow it till the wooden floor turns to dirt. When you start seeing the niches in the wall with the spirit lamps in them, you know you're getting hot. He explained, and I nodded. Won't take more than an hour or so to follow in the cavern. It stops being here about 50 yards past the wooden floor and becomes someplace else another hundred or so beyond that. You'll know. It'll start stinking something fierce and foul, too, as soon as you hit the spirit lamps. Pay no never mind and hold your nose if you gotta. No shame in that. No, sir. One more thing. You get into his house and he's there himself, you don't even think my name or see my face in your mind, or he'll come after me, you hear? I'm Hep. I know the score, I assured him. I know you do, brother. I know you do. Just reminding you is all. You get in his house, and he ain't the home. You find somebody else there, anything that moves, you keep your mouth shut, and don't look at it. Keep your distance, mind, no matter what it looks like. Them's that in for real punishment down there will do anything to get free of the Baron, and if they do, well, there's nowhere you nor anybody else can hide when you messed with him, and he's got your scent. And that was that. 
Maurice handed me a tote sack with a note, a bottle of his finest rum, and a box of poor Laranaga cigars to offer to the Baron, and hopefully buy back a little goodwill. I slung the bag over my back, and then he pointed me towards the trap door. Come back alive and piss and vinegar, Gator, or I'll raise a glass at your shade as it passes into the by and by. Maurice said with a wink as he shoved me through the trap door, which I noticed was covered over in hex signs front and back, and had a big iron bar he would drop in place on his side once I was through. A minute later, I was making my way down the narrow wooden passageway that all too soon turned to stone and dirt. A few minutes later, the shimmer came over me, and I knew I'd passed through. Not long after that, I started to see the niches and the spirit lamps flickering. A few at first, then more, then by the hundreds, as they lined the stone walls of the cavern that was now descending sharply into the hot bowels of the earth. It was hard to breathe down there, and I was getting real woozy, my head spinning like I was at the wrong end of a sour drunk. Thing was, though, I'd only had one shot of Maurice's finest. The smell was far worse than I'd imagined, and I'd figured on something like the sewers backed up on a hot day, and the sludge and gore of an abandoned abattoir for openers. Nothing prepared me for this, and I admit to emptying my guts more than once along the way. There was also something down here that Maurice hadn't warned me about. The spirit lamps. I'd thought they were just a bunch of hex lamps like the one I was holding to guide me through the layers of haint, the space between the cracks in the so-called real world. That wasn't what they were by a long shot. At first, I figured it was the wind, but how could that be down here? The sounds of moaning rose up all around me in a flurry from the spirit lamps, and they started spewing a dark pink smoke. Voices and cries split the infernal darkness, sobbing and wailing and calling out for mercy for me to help them escape. Then I felt soft, misty fingers stroking my hair and hands grabbing my clothes, so I hurried my pace. I knew what was down here. Not all souls who find their way to the barren when their time's up get shown the way to the promised land. A lot of them get snugged away, lock and chain in some kind of agonizing limbo till their sentence is paid. But from the sounds of it, if there was a hell, this was it. I realized I was running, the feeble little glow of the hex lamp my only companion as I barreled headlong into the darkness. I'm not sure just when the tidal crash of pleading cries and tortured screams had died away and been replaced by a slow, cadenced throb that built into a booming that I thought was going to bring the place down around me. My brain was pretty much a blur at that point. Finally, up ahead through the billowing pink smoke from the spirit lamps, I could make out a door, a shiny black door at least twice my height, carved with the intricate white sketches I knew all too well. I was finally entering the domain of the King of the Dead, the Lord of the Crossroads, the man himself, Baron Samdi. 
the place was damn near the size of a cathedral inside, all black and shiny like the door, and worked up on those sketches they call Veve, the hex lines that call up the Loire by those who serve them, and those stupid enough to think they can get away with it alike. There was a massive bonfire burning in the center of the place, and its flames licked the air and disappeared into the vaulted cavernous ceiling overhead. There was coffins here, too, by the hundreds. Fancy caskets and lacquer and brass for the rich, and shabby pine boxes for those who weren't. All ended up in the domain of the Baron. The man himself did not appear to be home, and that should have made me heave a sigh of relief, except that what was at home in that cavernous temple would haunt my nightmares for the rest of my life. I walked over to where the altar sat, a bizarre spectacle that seemed almost to keep the south wall of the place from caving in. There was bones all polished white, lots of them, everywhere stacked in neat piles like pyramids and scattered about. Beside the altar sat a huge throne of skulls, polished to a shine, and spilled over with the Baron's veve and red candle wax and tallow fat. The throne was empty. The ground in front of that altar was not, however, unoccupied. I stared gut-wrenched at the monstrosity that writhed sinuously in front of me. A thing no less than fifteen feet long stretched out, coiling like a serpent with arms and legs and a head that was all too human, or had been. The thing was coming fast towards me, all skeleton now in rotted meat and long matted hair, but it had clearly once been a woman. The tattered remains of once fine satins and velvet hung in faded shreds from way too many ribs to the floor and a sickly yellow ooze dripped from dozens of horrible wounds. To have earned this kind of torment, the creature must have long ago been one powerful badass mambo, some priestess who went far afoul of the way the Baron wanted things done. The thing had a voice that damn near drove me to tear out my own throat as a means of escape. It was a woman's voice, lovely and haunting like a siren made me want to tear off my clothes and throw down on the floor and writhe around with her. Then I caught sight of a black envelope, propped up on the altar with my name on it, worked in that same fine hand and silver ink as the rest of the artistry that covered the walls of the place. That put the brakes on any other activities I might have been considering. I lunged past the writhing thing and grabbed the envelope. Before I retreated to the farther side of the chamber to open it, I took the contents of my tote sack, cigars and rum, and placed them respectfully in the center of the altar. Then I mumbled a greeting under my breath, along with the fervent wish to remain upright among the living a good while longer. The monstrosity coiled up to its full height, towering above me, its hands playing sensuously down its hideous long body, as it smiled a toothless grin. Come, child. Come to my bosom. There's pleasure here in these arms for you. In the arms of a Ronique Sabatier. Come. Come, am I not beautiful? 
Do you not desire these loins, these breasts? She cooed, hoisting what remained of the rotting appendages and shoving them at me. I backed slowly away as she hissed in rage at my rebuke, then lunged again just as I bolted for the tall ornate black mirror that stood on the other side of the altar. Just as I hoped, it was no ordinary mirror and proved to be a hex door, a means of seeing things from far off and long ago and for traveling there when you know how and have a mind to. I leapt through and stumbled a few times before falling face down onto the muddy banks of the Mississippi River. I staggered to my feet and found a dry patch where I lit a match to read the contents of the envelope the Baron had left me. It was a map of an island just due south of town, deep in the bayou. It was all I needed to find the whereabouts of old Amadie Philippe in his hidey hole, crumbling old plantation-style manor. A chill came over me, as something half-remembered, something cold and damp, nosed around the private corners of my soul. What chilled me to the bone, though, was the name, the family name, styled up in fancy script in the middle of some kind of family crest. It read, The Proud Family Seat of One Freighter Amadie Philippe Packard, first and last of his kind, and sole survivor of all known kin, the star and snake that swallows its tail. End part one.